Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you here on this uh, cold spring day. Uh, my name's Adam. If you don't know who I am, I'm one of the associate pastors here. Pastor Eric is uh, away for this week and uh, next, and uh, we'll be digging into God's Word here in a minute. Um, just one uh, quick announcement uh, for you uh, before we get into God's Word. Uh, I hope you appreciate Pastor Keith as much as I do. I love this guy. He's great. And many of you know he's retiring soon. Um, we are having a retirement party for him at the end of the month, and we need a few child workers to work in the nursery. So if you want to uh, serve uh, this church in, in honor Pastor Keith's, I think it's like 22 and a half years uh, of service here, uh, please uh, sign up on your bulletin strip to, to help out with that. So um, thanks for thinking about that, and let's pray. Lord, we do uh, just want to thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your forgiveness. Just as Keith said, Lord, you are very good to us. So we just want to say thank you. Uh, we want to honor you this morning uh, in your word. We pray that you give us uh, ears to hear and give us comprehension of um, what can be considered sometimes a tricky passage, Lord. Uh, but help us to, to get some good stuff out of it, Lord, and put it into our hearts and our lives. Uh, we pray you guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, I just want to jump right in uh, with where we left off last week. Uh, if you remember, Pastor Eric gave us all a little bit of homework. He gave us uh, two questions for us to think about. Any of you guys remember what uh, those two questions were? Yes? No? Well, I'll remind us. Uh, the two questions that he asked us to think about uh, over the past week are, first of all, does the Lord have my whole heart? And the second question was, if no, what's holding you back? I'll say those two again. Does the Lord have your whole heart? And if no, what's holding you back? Now, I think another way to ask that first question of wholeheartedness might be to ask something like, are knowing and loving and serving God my top priorities, or is something else get the lion's share of my heart? And I want to say that uh, here at Bethel, I think we're very blessed to have a lot of people uh, here who are, are good people. And by good, I don't mean perfect. I don't mean sinless people. But I mean that we have a lot of people uh, who really do love God and seek to honor him uh, with their priorities, with their lives, and it shows. And uh, you all encourage me uh, to walk in my faith, and, and your drive to grow in him spurs me on to want to know him more. So thank you for that. Uh, but I also want to say something else that might surprise you. Uh, if you did that homework this past week and asked those two questions, and particularly with that first question you asked, does the Lord have my whole heart? And if you took an honest look at your heart and said, you know what, I think the answer is no. I'm going to say that answer is okay, too. And the reason why I say it's okay is maybe for you right now, where you're at, that brutal no answer is an honest answer. It's an answer of truth. And that, that honest assessment can be liberating for us. Because what it can do, if our hearts are sensitive, is it can make us say, you know what, Lord, I know that you don't have my whole heart, but I don't want it to be that way. I want you to have more of my heart. I want you uh, more. And when we're in that place, then that leads us to the second question that we were asked this past week. What's holding us back? And that could be a, a pretty painful question to answer too, Right? 
when we think of, about what could be holding us back from a more wholehearted devotion to God, it could be a lot of different answers. Uh, for some of us, we might have had some circumstances, something happened in our lives that maybe made us question God's love for us. Something unexpected that we never thought would happen in our lives did. Or something that we were sure was going to happen didn't. And our circumstances become this persistent lying whisper in our ears that tries to convince us this is the proof that God doesn't really care about you. Or for some of us, what might be holding us back is a feeling of guilt over past sin, maybe something that happened years ago, decades ago, or even more recently. And it haunts us. And we feel like, okay, maybe technically God's forgiven sin, but I sure don't feel forgiven. And uh, this, this thought comes back and haunts me, and I feel like God's holding it against me. So why should I bother to give my whole heart to God when I feel like I'm a second-class Christian here? For others of us, the thing that might be holding us back could just be a feeling that we don't really have much to offer to God. We might not have the smarts or the talents or the people skills that we see other people have, and we just say, this is as good as it gets, uh, so I'm just going to be right here. And our frustration with things as not being as they ought for whatever reason maybe it's our circumstances or our guilt or inadequacies, can become an excuse for a less than wholehearted walk with God. We say, if this is as good as my life and my spiritual walk with God's going to get, well, so be it then. We settle. We might feel uh, something like this particular cat, okay? Uh, now, for those of you listening online who can't see the image here, it's an image of a cat trapped in a barbecue, the barbecue is not lit. Uh, and it says, I got stuck, so I went to sleep. Uh, this is a prime example of cat wisdom. I love these kinds of things. And I, I think I might have seen this on Pastor Eric's wall. He, tons of these. He loves cats, if you didn't know that. Uh, and I think, just as a side note, good reminder to you, April 1st is our annual Send Eric a Picture of a Cat Day. So uh, go ahead, look him up on Facebook. Cat poetry, cat wisdom, just flood his, his Facebook page with cat images. Uh, but anyway, for this particular cat, his problem is motivation. He says, I can't really get out, so why bother? I'm just going to take a nap. And the same thing can be true for us. How do you get motivated to live wholeheartedly for God? Well, one answer to that is we can fix some of our wrong thinking. Uh, there are certain thoughts that we can have about God and about how he relates to us that hold us back in our devotion to him. We get motivated to live wholeheartedly for God by fixing our wrong thinking that can put a chokehold on a spiritual life. So today we're going to expose three particular lies that a lot of us struggle with uh, about God and about how he relates to us so that we can get rid of some of these barriers to serving him wholeheartedly. Uh, we're picking up in the book of Zechariah again. So Zechariah is near the very end of the Old Testament, so uh, just find Matthew in the New Testament, go back a few pages. We're going to be in uh, chapter 1, but as you're turning over there, I just want to remind us all of a little bit of the historical background and what's going on in the book of Zechariah. Uh, in Zechariah, the Jews have just returned uh, from a long uh, period of punishment, a timeout, so to speak. This was a 70-year period of exile. Um, they had been in the nations, and now we're coming back, and they're returning to the rubble of their previous home. They were instructed to rebuild, and they started off okay, but then some opposition arose from the locals there, 
and they got diverted off of their schedule. It held their attention for too long, and the project became on hold for years. Their specific task at hand was to rebuild God's temple. The foundation had been laid, but the people allowed themselves to get distracted. They had to build their own homes, tended their own fields, and they neglected God's work. And in the very opening of the book, which we covered last week, just those first few verses, God confronts people with their inattention to what he wants them to do, with their sin, and he tells them to change their ways. And in those first few verses, a beautiful thing happens. The people listen, and they repent, and they say, you know, Lord, we have done wrong. Uh, We want to turn back to you. He says, return to me, and I'll return to you. So that's where we're picking up today. The people have repented, and now what? Here they were, plodding away on the building of the temple, but their, their hearts were just not all in it there. And so God comes in and basically does something special to correct some of their misconceptions about him and about how he deals with them. So he sends them a huge encouragement to motivate them to complete the temple. He does this through one very long, very strange dream. It's made up of eight smaller dreams or smaller visions. Uh, They're sometimes referred to the night visions of Zechariah. And uh, they're given to Zechariah, this long dream's given him, to encourage the people. So this long dream composed of eight separate visions take up most of the first six chapters of the book of Zechariah. This is one of the most mysterious and colorful parts of the Old Testament. It's also pretty bizarre. If you've been reading through it, you might be going, what on earth is going on here? We're going to jump on in. Uh, There's a lot of detail to dream. There's a lot of symbolism, but we are going to keep it simple today. So just relax, sip your coffee, and we'll jump on in here. Uh, We're going to just cover the highlights uh, of this particular dream and get a handle on how God is trying to encourage his people through it. So we're going to look at these three misconceptions that God corrects in the mind of his people so that they can wholeheartedly serve him. And the first lie, I think, is maybe a huge one for a lot of people. And that lie is, God could care less about me. You ever feel like that? The people in this uh, passage did. So we're going to start reading the first chapter of Zechariah in verse 7 and see what God has to say about that. Uh, Before we actually look into the text, I want to just give us two uh, keys here to reading. First of all, keep in mind this is supposed to be an encouragement. The whole dream, even the parts of judgment against sin, are intended to encourage the people to finish their work. Uh, The second thing is since we're not actually seeing this vision with our own eyes, but we're just hearing about it secondhand, is that it can get a little bit confusing sometimes on how many characters there are and who's doing what. Uh, There's one particular key that's going to help us here. Keep in mind that through the eight night visions, through this long dream, there are two main characters. Zechariah, who's the one receiving the vision, and then a second character who's called by different names. Sometimes he's just referred to as the man. Sometimes he's referred to as the angel or the angel talking with me. And sometimes he's referred to as the angel of the Lord. Okay, so second character called by a variety of names. So Zechariah, one other character here, the angel, the angel of the Lord, and a lot of stuff going on in the background, what we're going to see here. Okay, um, let's go ahead and dive on in here. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7. Let's catch a glimpse of the start of this vision, and we're going to see how God addresses this objection of, God, you could care less 
about us. Verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I'll show you what they are. The man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. We've gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Okay, let's just pause right there and make sure we're all on the same page here as we kind of move in here. So uh, Zechariah, uh, the prophet, he has a vision. This is kind of like a dream, although we don't think he's actually sleeping here. He's seeing these images appear before him. And this particular dream or vision is God's word to his people, okay? And the first part of this dream opens up with a scene of a man on a red horse amid some trees, okay? And this is the one who's talking with Zechariah. He's also called the angel, the angel of the Lord. And once we understand that this is the angel of the Lord, we need to kind of perk up our ears a little bit. The angel of the Lord uh, was not your just typical run-of-the-mill angel, as amazing as that would be to see an angel with your eyes. Uh, The angel of the Lord was some kind of special manifestation of the Father himself, so that when the angel of the Lord speaks, it's as though God himself is speaking Although sometimes we're going to see the angel of the Lord actually speaking to the Father, so they're differentiated. Kind of interesting. Uh, Some people uh, think that this may be Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. But the idea here is the angel of the Lord is important. This is not just an average angel, right? So Zechariah is talking with his angel of the Lord, who's standing among the myrtle trees on a horse. In the background, we see this group of different colored horses, right? And they're coming back home to give a report, Uh, to the angel that Zechariah is talking with. And the angel explains that these, these horses, are the ones that the Lord has sent throughout the whole earth. In other words, these horses are reconnaissance, right? They're checking out the state of the world and reporting back to the angel of the Lord. And the report is, we have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and at peace. At a first glance, uh, that sounds kind of good, doesn't it? It sounds like good news. The whole world's at rest and peace. Don't we wish it was like that, right? But as we read on, we find out that this isn't good news, but this is actually bad news. And the reason why it's bad news is because that all these uh, scouts had been checking out enemy territory, all the nations that oppressed God's people. And these scouts were basically coming back with the news, yep, all of God's enemies are at peace. That's not good news. And our modern-day equivalent, that might be like a military commander uh, sending out some 5,000 hover drones uh, throughout the Middle East to check on ISIS training camps, right? The hover drones check it all up back. They come back. The intelligence report is given, and they tell the commander, our enemy's doing just fine, smooth sailing, just the same old status quo. Nothing's changed. Would that be good news? No, that'd be really bad news. And that's why when we read on in this particular vision, the angel who's talking with Zechariah gets worked up. Read with me in verse 12. It says, Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah 
which you have been angry with these 70 years. So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they added to the calamity. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. So why does the angel of the Lord get so worked up when he hears that things are just the same old status quo? The reason why is because the status quo stunk. The status quo was that the nations who had hounded and who had hurt God's people were at peace, but God's people were downtrodden. The status quo was that the Jewish people looked at their lousy circumstances, their near-empty homeland, and rubble where the temple should have been, and they thought to themselves, you know what? Our circumstances are telling us that God could care less about us. But my oh my, were they wrong. Get this. God essentially sees the status quo, the sorry state of his people in the opening scene and says, Mm-mm, not on my shift. And then things get rolling. Now, I was thinking a lot about this uh, the past week and, and just as a way for us to kind of relate to a little bit. Uh, it's kind of like if you're into action movies, right? And there's always a part like halfway into an, ac- or like half, half an hour into an action movie where the bad guy's getting away with something and circumstances are bad, and then the hero steps up and says, uh-uh, not going to let it happen. And then they crank up the music and the soundtrack. The good guy, if it's like a superhero, gets his gear on, right? They gear up, and you see this fast sequence of action of the hero going to get ready to take on the evil. That's what Zechariah's night visions are like. That's the scene. You guys know the scene I'm talking about in the movie? We should be totally amped up. Gets me excited. This is the kickoff to the rest of the night visions. God sees his downtrodden people who've recently humbled themselves and repented and turned back to him. And he says, this situation with my people is not okay. I'm going to do something about this. And then the rest of this very long vision here is more or less an explanation of the different things that God is doing on their behalf, but for his own glory. So that's why if you look at the very end part of the night visions, we're not going to read it. But in chapter 6, these same horse messengers that were back here come back again, but they're changed. At the start of the vision, these horse messengers are kind of uh, meekly coming back home at night, and they report the status quo of the world around them. But by the very end of the night vision, in chapter 6, these horses get transformed into war chariots that are charging out in the morning to carry out the Lord's will and to turn the world upside down. This is an exciting uh, thing in Scripture. The, the people would have been amped up. They were like, whoa, God is acting. He sees, he cares, and he's doing something. Uh, so get that in your mind. In their circumstances, the people, the lie that people believed and that we sometimes believe is that God could care less about me. But the truth was that God was jealous for his people, and God is jealous for you. 
verse 14 says, I'm very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And his passion leads to action. Now that's good news. That's encouraging. It's even motivating because it's a little easier to give more of your heart, more of your devotion to God when, you, when it really sinks in how much he really cares for us. Now, uh, our present circumstances, you may find yourself in something that doesn't look so good, but uh, it's comforting to know that just like God had the recon, the intelligence uh, with that situation, he knows our situation. He knows about every loneliness we might feel. He knows about maybe that bill on the counter that we don't even want to open because we know what's inside. Uh, He knows uh, our health situation. He sees these things. He cares, and he's moved to action. And I do want to be careful here. Uh, I'm not saying that we should bend and twist this passage to say wealth and health and happiness is going to just descend on everyone four seconds from now. Uh, Because as we know, God has his own timetable. And the same thing uh, was true for the Israelites in this passage today. As we're going to see, not just in today, but in the future weeks here as we go through Zechariah, uh, some of the promises of deliverance were for more immediate things, and some of them, the the fullness of them, were for further off. The Jews in this passage were going to experience but just the tip of the mountain of God's blessing in their present day. But God was saying to them, if you think that's good, just wait. The best is yet to come. And we need to acknowledge that uh, not all of our issues are resolved this side of heaven, right? Uh, But that doesn't mean that God's slacking off. I imagine that we, we do, and when everything's said and done and, and we are uh, with God, we're going to have a much different perspective. And this is a hard thing uh, when we're wrestling with a particular circumstance. Uh, but God knows how to turn dross and rubble into something worthwhile. Uh, it's all throughout Scripture. And it won't be surprising to me that some of the, the thorns that he lets linger in our own lives will actually turn out to be bringing great blessing that we didn't see in our own lives or others. But we just have to hang on for that. But the point of this first part of the vision is that God cares and he's doing something about it. He's jealous for his people and he acts on their behalf. That's a motivator. Okay, well, let's uh, look at line number two that keeps us from being wholehearted for God. Second one, second lie is God's holding my past against me. Have you ever felt like that? Like, Sure, okay, God, on paper, somewhere in heaven, I'm forgiven, but I sure don't feel forgiven. I feel like the effects of my sin are, are still, God's still holding that against me. Well, let's dig a little bit deeper into the middle part of Zechariah's night vision and see what God has to say about that. Uh, if you're there with me in scripture, let's look at the start of chapter three. This is another scene in the same vision here. And we're gonna be reading about one of Zechariah's contemporaries. He's a man named Joshua. Uh, who was the Jewish high priest at the time. So this is uh, a next section of the same dream. Chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Has not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin. 
and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you'll walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I'll give you a place among those standing here. Uh, now I'm going to deal with this part of the vision super fast because of time, right? That we're dealing with six chapters of scripture here. Um, but here's the vision in a nutshell. There's a man on trial named Joshua. Uh, he's a real guy. He's a contemporary of Zechariah, and he's also the high priest. So he's the one who's supposed to be offering sacrifices and conducting worship for the whole nation of Israel. Uh, but he's in trouble, right? Not only is he on trial, but the prosecuting lawyer is Satan himself. Okay, please turn to your neighbor, share your favorite lawyer joke. Okay, maybe not. Not good, right, if Satan is the prosecuting attorney. But even worse than that, Joshua here is depicted as being as guilty as sin. He's wearing these filthy robes. And I don't want to be too graphic here, but the word here for filthy is not like I've been wearing my jeans for five days filthy. Um, but this related words are with uh, vomit and excrement. Uh, this kind of clothing he was wearing, these were throwaway clothes. You couldn't use these clothes for anything anymore. <clears throat> but despite this apparently open and shut case, a seemingly easy win for this lawyer Satan, God steps in and he intervenes. And God reminds Satan that he's chosen Joshua, who's standing really for all the people, and he forgives them. And not only that, he's restoring them to useful service to him. The lie, God's holding my past against me. But the truth is that God forgives your past and wants you to serve him. Now, some of you, and I've been there, right? You still don't believe it. You say, yeah, whatever. Well, let's look at the, uh, God's track record at forgiving and using other sinners in the past. Moses, a murderer. David, an adulterer and a murderer. Peter, a denier of God in the flesh in his darkest hour. The Apostle Paul, someone who's trying to snuff out the church so that it wouldn't go anywhere or tell people about Jesus. But this is what God does. And aren't we glad? He forgives us. He restores us. You wouldn't be the first and you won't be the last. And we should rejoice in that. Don't let feelings of guilt hold you back from wholehearted devotion to God. Confess your past. Let him take care of your sin. That's what Jesus does. And then be free to serve him wherever that is and whichever way he calls you to. Okay, quickly, lightning round here. Lie number three. I don't have anything to offer, okay? Let's read in chapter four now. Next part of the vision, different scene here. Uh, chapter four, starting in verse one, and see what God has to say about this particular lie. It says, the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man's wakened from his sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a, go a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my lord? 
He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, almighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he'll bring out the capstone, capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. So this vision is um, of a lamp. Lamps back then look a lot different than lamps look now. Um, here's one example here. This is a first century lamp. Great job, Andrew, on getting the pixels to, to look good on the screen there. Boy, I did, I think it was kind of a tiny image, but you did a good job. So um, this is actually a first century lamp. So uh, maybe slightly different from what the Zechariah's audience was used to, but something very similar to this, right? The idea is you put oil in the middle of the lamp and then a wick is coming out of the side and you light that. Uh, that's one of the channels for the flames there. So the lamp in this vision was highly unusual, right? Because it had seven lamps uh, on it, I'm sorry, seven lights, each with seven channels or wicks on it. So that's like a lamp with seven mini lamps with seven lights on each one. So that's 49 lamps. Just imagine a bunch of flashlights all turned on at once, right? This is a pretty bright lamp, shining brightly here. And the bottom line about this vision is that it was about God supplying the power. The point's wrapped up in this declaration, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And this word was specifically for a man named Zerubbabel. I don't know anyone who's chosen that name for their kids these days. A little bit odd, uh, but he was also a real guy. He was a contemporary of Zechariah, and he was the governor uh, there in Judah uh, in the, when the Jews were returning. And up to this point for the returned exiles, uh, things seemed to be going nowhere, caught in a quagmire. The temple had been started, but now had been stagnating for years and years. Uh, as a political leader of these Jewish people, Zerubbabel probably felt pretty impotent, worthless, that all of his efforts amounted to nothing because he just couldn't get traction on it. He felt like he had nothing to offer. And we can feel like that too. But the truth that God was saying here through this particular image was, well, you're not going to get a lot done in your own power, but you will in his, in God's power. And again, this is a motivator for us, right? It's not really our strength. It's not our skill and ability, but it's our dependence upon God and his ability God knew that Zerubbabel didn't have what it took in himself to get the job done. But God said, I'm going to help you. I'm going to supply what you need so that your meager offering is going to be effective, like this 49 flame lamp. Don't hold back. Give me what little you got. Let me be your strength and your power. Well, that's just our uh, brief sampling here of the night vision. So uh, we're going to wrap it up here with a little bit of review with these three lies here. Uh, so we have one dream here and these uh, opening chapters of Zechariah composed of eight smaller night visions. It's a message of encouragement. God was motivating his people to give him their whole heart and to enthusiastically get back to rebuilding the temple. And God corrected some misconceptions that the people had. And I didn't hit all of them. I just hit some of the highlights here out of those visions. The first one, God could care less about me. And God says, no, I want to show you that actually I'm jealous for you and I move to action. Second lie that they were believing, that God was holding their sin 
against them. He says, no, I've forgiven you. And more than that, I want you to serve me. The third lie, I don't have anything to offer. On that one, he says, well, that might be true in yourself, but I, God, have a whole lot to offer, and I want to offer it through you. So, now there's one last encouragement for us here from today's passage. I guess it's uh, buy three, get one free morning here uh, for encouragement from Zechariah, right? Um, And it's this. To us, uh, the contributions and our lives might be seem small and insignificant. But God can use what we do in obedience to him. Things that seem small and insignificant to us for his grand purpose. Little things like uh, having a devotional time with your kids, reading through the Bible. Praying with your spouse. uh, Having a great attitude and a good work ethic at a thankless job. God can use the little stuff. And we see this even in today's passage. The people in that day were going to be used to build a temple, right? And though that seemed big enough in its own day, it was only one tiny piece of what God was doing over the course of mankind and his redemption of mankind. Now, let's take note here. The temple that they rebuilt is not standing today. So was it all a waste? Absolutely not. And the reason why, because God was using that chapter of faithfulness among these ragtag refugees to point to a much bigger blessing that he was going to bring for all mankind. Specifically, the thing that the night visions and other parts of Zechariah point to is the coming of the Messiah, who we know as Jesus here. Now, I'm not going to read the parts, but if you want to just take notes here. Uh, At the end of chapter 3, in verses 8 to 16, and again a second time in chapter 6, verses 9 to 15, God tells us something very specific about this coming messianic figure who's called the branch, and that's language that's picked up from Jeremiah. Uh, But this Messiah, or branch, is coming. And it says here in Zechariah, specifically in the night visions, that the branch is going to take away the nation's sin in a single day. And he's going to be a high priest, but he's also going to be a ruling king. And he's going to be the one to build the true temple of God made of Jews and Gentiles. There's going to be a greatness to his kingdom that will be unparalleled. And we know that Jesus, or that he's talking about Jesus here. We have that perspective on history. But the takeaway encouragement for the people of that day was this. They were going to experience God's blessing on one level. The temple would be rebuilt. Uh, They would have a time of relative prosperity and even a little bit of autonomy in the time of the Maccabees coming up in the near future. But it's like God was saying, do you think this is good? You ain't seen nothing yet. The best is yet to come. And that thought that God can use our little offering, our little lives, to give people a glimpse of his grand purpose and what he's doing to redeem mankind should motivate us too. Don't let those wrong thoughts about God hold you back from giving your whole heart to him. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to finish the same way we started, acknowledging your goodness to us. Thank you so much, Lord, 
forgive our uh, hearts and eyes that are slow to see it sometime, but Lord, I pray that you just really grab our hearts and remind us that uh, you do care. You see our situation, you care. You move, and you have moved in Jesus. You forgive our past, and you want to use us for whatever little ways that are going to be speaking to people about what you're doing. We love you. Help us to give our whole hearts to you. Amen.